You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's show is brought to you by Bombfell. There are people looking at how you dress. It's just important. And Bombfell is going to make sure they look good. For $25 off your first purchase, visit bombfell.com. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L.com. Slash my history. It was a nightmare. I almost literally looked down into my open grave. That's what one senator said about his decision whether to impeach a president of the United States or not. Edmund Ross, does he cast his vote against the impeachment of a president? He was the least likely to do that. He was an opponent of the president politically. He was in the Republican Party. And Andrew Johnson, though he had run with Lincoln that one time, was really a Democrat. It's not only that. He was a senator from Kansas. And Kansas was, at this time, a radical Republican state. The Ross family who owned newspapers, were spending a lot of ink blasting the conduct of President Johnson and condemning the conduct of the previous United States Senator, James Lane, because he was too friendly with Johnson. In fact, the political pressure was so great, Lane took his own life. Edmund Ross, newspaper editor, is now put into the Senate seat. We need a strong Republican man, is what the governor and other politicians in Kansas thought. It's a dependable Republican vote for a lot of things in the Senate. He voted, for instance, for a Senate resolution condemning President Johnson for his violation of the Tenure of Office Act. We'll get to what that is. But this was a resolution that provided some political cover. The House of Representatives has to initiate an impeachment against the president. So the Senate did a resolution just to give them cover and say, hey, if you do this, you can see the Senate's with you. Ross votes for this. And if one looks through all the roll calls and procedural motions, one sees his name, Ross, dependable Ross, in most cases, doing what the historically labeled radical Republicans, those seeking a harder reconstruction and opposed at this point 
to what the President of the United States wanted, letting Confederates go back into government, those who had fought, back into society and running states as they once did. All the rulings that are many of them going against the president, against hearing certain evidence that might help the president, Ross's crushing hope for the president's defense. And something puzzling was going on because Ross wouldn't tell a soul how he planned to vote. Newspapers became alarmed. Everyone is watching Ross and a few other senators. There's detectives roaming around the Washington city, following Ross, seeing who he talks with. A letter signed by D.A. Anthony, a Republican leader in the state and the brother of Susan B. Anthony, that say, D.A. Anthony and 1,000 Kansans demand an answer, demand to know how you vote. And Ross simply replied to the telegram. I don't consider myself having any obligation to answer to you. I will listen to the evidence and do the best job of the people of Kansas. And Ross sat, listening in the Senate chamber to evidence provided by the House managers who are indicting the president. It is the job of the House to prosecute an impeachment before the Senate. And the president's lawyers, he listened to as they made their case. The manager said the president had abused his authority. No, he didn't, the defense lawyer said. He only interpreted the laws he sought. And at least in this version of history, while everyone else in Washington City's got something going on, they either want Andrew Johnson gone so they can do their own form of reconstruction of the South, or they want Johnson in. Maybe they have a political agenda, but in this version of the story, one senator sits in the chamber listening to the evidence. And upon completion, a vote on 11 articles. They put the 11th first. They think it's the easiest that will pass. Everyone tries to get to Edmund Ross. He either is locked up in his room or, as one version of the story, he's walking the streets of Washington at 3 or 4 a.m. deciding how he's going to vote. Daniel Sickles, a union general, waits for Ross at his house. And he's either upstairs, not opening the door, or he's roaming the streets of Washington. There's two different accounts on that. The other senator from Kansas, Samuel Pomeroy, Tries to get to Ross, too, even on the Senate floor. Hey, how are you going to vote? He won't tell anyone a thing. The excitement reaches a fever pitch. In order to convict a president of the United States, then and now, you need two-thirds of the Senate. That meant just 19 senators at that time voting against the impeachment of Andrew Johnson would acquit him. And there were 12 Democrats in the Senate, and not a single one of them was wavering. They were all going to vote to acquit. That left seven Republicans. If seven Republican votes were for acquittal, the president would be acquitted. A few names, however, Grimes of Iowa, Fessenden of Maine, had already stated that they were against this impeachment. Didn't feel like there was enough there. Others were more on the fence. Freeling Heisen, you know, that family's been in politics for a while, of New Jersey. Iffy. But he votes to convict. In a presidential impeachment, a rare bird, Chief Justice of the United States, is the one that presides over the Senate. And he asks each senator for their vote. They go 
through the A's, the B's, the D's, the E's, the F's. The Democrats, not surprisingly, most of the Republicans vote that Andrew Johnson is guilty. Five Republicans who vote to acquit. They need seven for the president to be acquitted. But there's a Republican in West Virginia, Van Winkle, who is a maverick. And they know he's going to vote for acquittal. His name starts with a V. That means all the pressure is on Edmund Ross, the last Republican senator who hasn't said how he'll vote. They get to the R's. Chase says, Senator Ross, how do you vote? And there's this sound that no one can hear. Ross says later, It's not strange that my answer was carried waveringly over the air and failed to reach the limits of the audience, or that repetition was called for by distant senators on the opposite side of the chamber. No one could hear Ross's vote. Chase asks again, Senator, how do you vote? And he says, full throat. Not guilty. It was a murder of crows. Flapping off. The president has a rider set to go to the executive mansion to get up, deliver news of the Senate. Telegrams start arriving immediately. One from D.A. Anthony we mentioned earlier. Kansas repudiates you as it does all scoundrels and skunks. There is a call in the House for an investigation of what goes on in the Senate. There's allegations of bribery. No one was convicted in those investigations, but... Edmund Ross, and indeed every Republican senator that did not vote for impeachment, was rejected by the Republican Party and by the states that they served. Edmund Ross would leave the Senate in 1872. He always defended his vote, writes a book in the 1890s, and on his deathbed in 1907, they're still asking about it. He never regrets his vote. Impeaching Johnson, he said, would make the presidency too weak. For the most part, except in Kansas, Edmund Ross remained a unknown figure. It's much later, in the 1950s, when an ambitious young senator, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, writes his book, Profiles in Courage, and profiles Edmund Ross. Here's what he writes. By the firmness and courage of Senator Ross, it was said, the country was saved from calamity greater than war. While it consigned him to a political martyrdom, the most cruel in our history, Ross was the victim of a wild flame of intolerance. He did his duty, knowing that it meant his political death. It was a brave thing for Ross to do, but Ross did it. He acted right. And that story of John F. Kennedy about Edmund Ross is one of those great political stories in American history. But today, not everyone's so sure if this version is right. Ross may have been a diligent judge sitting in the Senate. He may have even been concerned about the presidency. Or he could have been bribed or at least sought out more patronage and played a game. Or it could have been because he hated someone that made him vote not guilty. 
It could have been a great thing. It could have been evil. It could have been petty. And all of that sacred history, the history of the presidency, saving the presidency from an impeachment. Ross's story, only one of the most intriguing of many mysteries about impeachment. Mysteries that we'll address today. Why is it in the Constitution the way it is? Why does the Senate try the president? Why has it never been used successfully? Will it ever be? What is the meanings of the words in the impeachment clauses of the Constitution? High crime, high misdemeanors. What on earth is a high misdemeanor? Is it a useless provision? Because both times it was used, the House impeached a president. There was some silliness, some pettiness to it. Or were they for good reasons? And if they were for silliness and pettiness, does that make the impeachment process silly and petty and useless? What is really going on during an impeachment? Does the Senate become a court? Will we ever see multiple impeachments, a president and a vice president? What happens then? And did Aaron Burr help or hinder impeachment for future generations? All these mysteries we'll address in this episode. First, I focus on the tablecloths. The Senate chamber, decked in crimson, green, and blue. Crimson for the senators who will now sit in judgment. Green for the managers from the House of Representatives, having impeached, who will make the case. They are not congressmen in this case. They are guests in the Senate chamber. They are prosecutors presenting evidence to the Senate. And blue for the impeached person and his defense lawyers. This is 1805. In this case, it's not a president, but a judge. And this colorful transformation is designed to say that the Senate has also transformed. It is something else. No longer a Senate truly but a courtroom. Yet that's a point that's controversial now and then, and we'll talk more about that. But at this moment in 1805, those colors signify some transformation has occurred. Thomas Jefferson is president. He's been reelected. He's about to take up his second term. And so will a Republican, you know, Democratic Republican, Jeffersonian Republican, his party, Congress, will take over. Sounds good, right? But yet he's frustrated because still in the infrastructure, there's a kind of, oh, you might say 19th century version of a deep state. The federal judiciary, he feels, is still full of all the federalist appointments that John Adams and George Washington made. The result, not of the people's will, but of the elites. And the most obnoxious, the overbearing, One is Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. They called him Bacon Face because he had this red skin. His just face would turn red all the time. And he was an attorney's nightmare as a judge. He'd interrupt. He'd insult. His rulings could be arbitrary. No legal reasoning or precedent behind them. And he'd issue a lot of opinions from the bench, sometimes hectoring, haranguing, and sometimes the content was political. He told a Baltimore jury that Jefferson's election 
had led to lawlessness in the nation. And word of that got back to the president. And President Jefferson suggested in a letter to a friendly House member, John Nicholson, Justice Chase should not go unpunished. Nicholson complied and put it in the hands of a Chase hater, James Randolph. And that congressman brought charges against him in the House. These charges, and this tells you a bit about impeachment, were nothing you or I could be locked up for. I mean, one count of impeachment was that he interrupted attorneys too much. That's an article of impeachment. Another was that he was partisan in his statements. That uh, Baltimore jury thing ended up as one of the articles. Nonetheless, the House impeaches him overwhelmingly, 73 to 32. Now, what does this mean? Because this is a very simple thing, but I think people get tripped up on it. Maybe not so much the listeners to this show, but some people out there tripped up on this. The House has impeached Justice Chase. And that means that the judge is summoned from the Supreme Court circuit. Judges traveled around back then to a chair in the Senate. Request for him to have a table was denied. He has to sit in a chair and answer questions. And then his lawyers are going to have to defend himself in the Senate because the House impeaches and the Senate convicts. We often speak about impeachment as if it's just one thing. But that's not true. It's a two-part process and involves two different branches of two different people elected in different elections, House and Senate. So in this case, you got 73 votes to 32, overwhelmingly in the House. All you need is a majority. One vote can do it to send charges to the Senate. That's why sometimes when you hear about impeachment, and oh, this president's been impeached. You know, we have two presidents in history that have been impeached. There's something like 19 uh, officials that have been impeached by the House, but that doesn't mean they were all convicted. No president's been convicted. But we often blend these terms together. Chase, I one gets the sense, somewhat reveled in this. So did the House manager that was prosecuting him, James Randolph. They were both very strong-willed, confident people, and they were on the attack against each other in a battle of political wills. Both felt like Chase felt he was going to embarrass these Jeffersonian Republicans of what they were trying to do to the judiciary, and they were acting partisan, and the Jeffersonian Republicans thought they were really going to try Chase and show how bad he was. But Chase had great lawyers, including Luther Martin. We talked about him in an episode. He was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. He's also a fantastic lawyer when he was sober. Had a little problem with that. And there was often clients would would give him money and hire him, but say, you have to, you know, no drinking during my case. Great lawyer, some acclaim. He used to be the Attorney General of Maryland. Chase had been a signer of the Declaration, member of the Maryland Revolutionary Committee, appointed to the Supreme Court by George Washington. But now he was being accused of all these charges by this shrill-voiced, gangly man, James Randolph. The chamber was full. This wasn't going to be a day that a senator was going to miss. A gallery was provided for the hundreds of spectators that would come to see, and there was an area for distinguished guests, and a special gallery for the ladies. Everything was fitted up in a stiddle beyond anything I had ever seen in this country. So said Uriah Tracy, Federalist Senator. One of those phrases I fully admit, I don't know what it means, but I think we know what it means, right? As if that drama wasn't enough. Drop into the scene a new player. 
Aaron Burr, the Vice President of the United States, for a few more months. And this is a very different Aaron Burr because this Aaron Burr is fresh from having killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. You listen to this podcast and you can sense the amount of time that goes into researching and the amount of time I spend reading history books. That means I don't have time for other things. And one of them is shopping for clothes. The good thing about the sponsor of this show, Bombfell, a unique styling service for men, is that it saves you time. Do you like going to the malls? Do you like shopping? I really don't. I'll go to a bookstore, not shopping for clothes and trying things on. Here's how Bombfell works. You go on their website, you fill out a short form, your size, your weight, and then your preferences. You know, what kind of things do you like to wear? What are brands that you like? For me, I'm a polo shirt guy. I like some Penguin. I like some some J. Crew. you know, Banana Republic, that kind of thing. And then one of the Bombfell stylists are going to look at your form. In my case, my stylist was Jasmine, and she picked out some great clothes. I mean, I'm very good with the history, not so much with the fashion. Like, I don't know what matches with what all the time. Your stylist is going to know that information, and she's, she picked out some great stuff. So I love the top. The pants were good, but they were khakis. And so I'm not a big, like, light khaki guy. I mean, mostly I'm afraid of, like, spilling coffee on them. So we probably won't do in this podcast. So I asked if we could change that to something darker. And, of course, Jasmine responded, absolutely, we're here to service you. Replaced it with a darker shade of pants, which I really liked. You're going to see that in your preview pane. You have 48 hours to make changes, or you can say, please send the clothes now. Keep in mind something. So far, I haven't paid anything. You don't pay anything with Bombfell until you get great clothes that you like. There's no sign-up fee. There's no styling fee. That's all part of the service. And when the clothes arrived, I loved the pants, just as I thought. I loved the polo shirt. The top, there's this amazing blue, button-down blue top. I really liked it, but it was too tight on me. No problem at all. I went on the Bombfell site, let them know I would be sending that item back, and then I wanted to replace it for an extra large. Fits great, looks great. I didn't have to spend any time in the store. I didn't have to spend any time in dressing rooms. It all came to my house, and I could keep on recording a podcast and doing all my little research. Now, people think I have great fashion. My wife loved the clothes. My cat, Bronx, actually... Seem to like the package that the clothes arrived in. So there's a, she's become a big Bombfell fan. Now, here's what you're thinking. Oh, I'm going to be bound to this thing. It's good. No, you tell Bombfell what you want and they get it for you. All right. It's a service. You set the time that you want your stylist to revisit, to revisit and see when you want more clothes. Do you want that to be monthly? Do you want that to be every two months? For instance, I said skip September. So that's no problem. We're going to revisit Bombfell again in October. And the stylist is going to pick out more things for me. And we'll see what I need. You're in control. And you don't pay for anything until you accept the clothes that you love. I've already been through the service the first time. 
they're getting to know my needs. They have more information about me. We've been through this once before, and it just will get better and better and more refined. Now, here's the good news. For My History Can Beat Up Your Politics subscribers, we've got a special deal. You can take $25 off your first order. That's something we've negotiated with Bombfell for you. So go there now and do it. www.bombfell.com slash myhistory. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com. Make sure you type that in so that you can get the $25 that's coming to you. So go and get your clothes. Bombfell.com slash myhistory. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Burr was a murderer for most of the Federalists in that chamber. And, you know, he wasn't exactly free at this point. He sort of slipped out of New Jersey, where there is an indictment for having the duel and killing Hamilton. And in New York, he was persona non grata. New York is where Byrd made his political fame. But he was still vice president. So he arrived back in D.C. You know, there's some negotiations going on with the governor of New Jersey, Governor Bloomfield, in Philadelphia, maybe trying to get rid of the indictment. The Federalists are making hay of this. Oh, my God, the guy that's going to sit on the chase impeachment, is going to preside, is under indictment himself. But by the Constitution, there's no way around it. The vice president has not been removed. And in an impeachment of a judge, this is different from an impeachment of a president, in an impeachment of a judge... The vice president presides over the Senate. This alarms some of the Federalists. There's a key senator, William Plummer, who's just deciding that he's going to watch Aaron Burr, and he's been watching him since he returned to the Washington City. You know, it's not like a private eye type stuff, but he's just making notice of who meets him, and he's seeing that the Republicans are treating him very well. President Jefferson is inviting him to dinner. You know, they hadn't really got along that well, but now after having killed Hamilton, Burr is not a political threat to anyone, or so it seems. You know, Jefferson's nice to him. Madison visits him at his boarding house. So does Gallatin, the key player in this administration. You know, Treasury Secretary visits his good friend Aaron Burr all the time. Republicans are treating him very well, Plummer notices. And it's an odd situation because in the last election, Burr was replaced with the former governor, George Clinton, of New York who's now going to be the vice president coming in. So Aaron Burr's done, but he's starting to say, wow, it's almost looking like after what he did to Hamilton, some Republicans want to put him on the ticket again. And as this trial begins, Federalists feel strongly. It's not just Chase on trial. Yeah, they pick the guy that's the most obnoxious, but it's their entire Federalist party on trial. And Burr is part of that destruction. He interrupts Chase when he tries to speak. He demands an answer when he feels that Chase hasn't answered. We already talked about the table. So Chase is sitting there in a chair answering questions from senators. He rules like the iron judge that was on trial, William Plummer thought, advising senators not to walk the floor during testimony 
being a little pedagogical, instructing senators not to eat apples or cakes during the hearing. Really, Master Burr, Plummer joked, comparing him to a schoolmaster. But the jokes were made only in his journal at home. No one dared violate the presiding officer, as he was keeping the Senate serene and court-like. It was upsetting the Federalist the way that he was handling Chase, like a hostile witness. But things were different when other witnesses came on the next days, because Burr was also demanding that kind of decorum of the prosecution witnesses and making sure they answered, sometimes interrupting them. And no matter who was talking, he made sure the Senate kept its attention focused on what was going on in the trial and what everyone was saying. Everyone gets heard. Everyone's questions gets answered to the extent they can. Luther Martin, the attorney for Sandal Chase, compliments Burr on his impartialness. And something happens. The House managers from their green tables are being outmatched by Chase's lawyers at the blue tables. I mean, Luther Martin just takes every charge and smashes it to bits, showing how ridiculous they were. He gives a five-hour closing speech. James Randolph, the house manager, he was ill during the trial. His closing remarks are clumsy, rambling, and the charges do seem silly. The Chase trial was, as an observer said, like the tiger hunting the Frenchman all the way. The trial indicated that nothing that the house managers had charged was impeachable. And on all counts, Chase is acquitted by the Senate. Not even one of the articles are close. There's a few more votes for the one about what he did with the Baltimore jury, but nothing's close. And uh, now Burr is starting to get complimented by the Federalists because he kept this atmosphere that enabled there to be an acquittal. He didn't do anything. He didn't argue anything as the presiding officer. He can't but he kept an atmosphere where a more partisan atmosphere might have hurt Chase's case. And an event follows this. Burr, who was out as vice president, a few days later makes a major speech, one that will go down in the history of the Senate. But you have to understand, Burr is going nowhere. He's destroyed in New York. He's still under indictment in New Jersey. He's kind of a fugitive, at least for state law. He's ruined politically. He's about to leave the vice presidency. All he's got left is to make one farewell address. It was like I was in a trance, one of the senators says, as Burr starts speaking. I lost all sense of time. Burr talks about the rules of the Senate, but he also apologizes. If he had ever wounded the feelings of any individual members, said he felt no anger towards anyone, noting that on his part, He had no injuries to complain of. If any had been done or attempted, he was ignorant of the authors. If he had ever heard, he had forgotten it. For he thanked God that he had no memory for injuries. This is a time when Burr's been replaced as vice president. There's a lot of people who don't like it. You know, he could have used his speech to attack his enemies. And the senator's noting this. And I think Nancy Eisenberg's account of this in Fallen Founder, The Life of Aaron Burr, works. Because he now honors the Senate, which is now, has just defended a judge against the wishes of a very strong and popular president. Here's what he said. 
Only truth and sincerity, he reminded his colleagues, ensured that the Senate would remain a sanctuary of liberty, a citadel against corruption. He believed the Senate to be the lifeblood of the Republic. It rose above considerations of merely their personal honor and character. It was the guardian of the law, the liberty, and the Constitution the Senate was. It is here, he points to the floor, it is here in this exalted refuge, here, if any, where resistance will be made to the storms of popular frenzy and the silent arts of corruption, and if the Constitution be destined ever to perish by the sacrilegious hand of a demagogue or the usurper, which God avert, its expiring agonies will be witnessed on this floor. He was separating from that august body and might be heard from no more. For him, at least, a chapter in the history of the Republic had come to an end. And so, all he could do was to remind his colleagues of the humanity he believed the collective Senate was capable of exhibiting. Men who believed in the principles of freedom and social order were also men of feeling. Eisenberg continues, At first, Burr's enemies tried to ignore the speech. Then they mocked it. William Coleman of uh, New York's pro-Hamilton Evening Post called reports of the speech a hoax. But they couldn't. As more news of the address made its way to New York, Burr's sudden acclaim was inexplicable. Given seemingly at his lowest moment, when he was out the door, the speech was being called a sublime achievement. Frustrated, Burr's opponents could only complain that Burr was magically reinventing himself. The same William Plummer we talked about, who was following Burr around as he was talking to, was so annoyed by him, said that Burr was an exceptional man, and he couldn't figure it out because the political rules don't apply to him. Well, why go on about Aaron Burr's speech and his, it's not a comeback, because he really doesn't come back. It really was a farewell, in a sense. I mean, next time he's going to be here, he's going to be on trial. But uh, that's another story for another day. Um, this leads to a question. Was Burr's celebrated impartialness at the trial really about good procedure, really about doing the right thing as a Senate, or was it about his resurrection in politics or an attempted resurrection? You know, if it's true that what we witnessed in the Chase impeachment was an impartialness and decorum brought because Burr was looking for a comeback, that's important to know because that decision on the Chase impeachment has colored every impeachment decision since. It set precedence. For instance, no Supreme Court justice since has been impeached. The Chase impeachment, make no mistake, weakened the precedent for impeachment. In other words, what it had indicated is don't bring every little party gripe that you have before the Senate for impeachment. There has to be something serious. Evidence for this is found in the fact that the Jeffersonian Republicans had already removed a judge, not a Supreme Court judge, but a district judge, John Pickering, for merely drinking a lot and making some bad decisions, they felt. 
But a lot of people felt that they were just trying to get rid of a Federalist judge and that slowly the Republicans were going to take back the judiciary using the tool of impeachment. This chase impeachment kind of stopped that because otherwise you would have a system where we're really just removing judges by a two-thirds vote. But that precedent set, you know, influences the public reaction. If you start doing that, it's going to get noticed. And the decorum of a court, this is a controversial question we'll touch on a lot in this episode. Because one of the mysteries about impeachment is, does the Senate change? In the Chase impeachment, it kind of did. Does the Senate change and turn into a court? If it does, it certainly benefits the defendant. And it certainly makes impeachment harder. And you have to consider it more. It's not just a simple, quick process like appointing a a slew of judges at one time or removing a slew of judges at one time. It's a carefully considered decision by senators who take it seriously. But it could have all been done. For one man's political career, perhaps. Back to President Andrew Johnson's case, a case of even a stronger precedent denied, perhaps. It had to be a strange day at the War Department. Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary for War, and now after Lincoln's assassination, he's still serving. He's a Republican. He's not having a great relationship with President Johnson. They have clashes over how Reconstruction is going to be handled in the South. You know, Republicans that are in Congress want more punishment for the South for having started the war, for having continued with rebellion. They don't want people to just become citizens and everything to be fine again. And this is part of the debate you're really seeing today. People still arguing over these things because... You know, there's certainly some who say, look, if we would have been harsher then, we probably wouldn't have had the problems with getting blacks to have rights. It would have happened faster. If you had a stronger reconstruction, maybe that would have happened. And even this plays a little into that statue debate, because one of the reasons there's so many statues is because there were uh, redeemer governments, the governments after the reconstruction governments put into most of the southern states after reconstruction failed. And that's where you're starting to see a greater look back to the Robert E. Lee and the Jefferson Davis and celebrating the Confederacy. Whereas in the time period we're talking about, rebels were still called rebels. And the rebellion was seen by many as an act of treason. Jefferson Davis is still indicted on charges. He's not freed yet. And Robert E. Lee's situation is in limbo. These these are still live events at this time. The Republicans realize that they've made a mistake. They thought that Andrew Johnson was going to be really harsh on the on the South because he made statements as such, and he was kind of a gruff guy. You know, Benjamin Wade, who's one of the real radical Republicans, guy from Ohio, he's a gruff guy himself, Wade. Wade used to be a cattle driver, and it was said that he treated men in politics the same way he used to treat the cattle. He wanted blacks to have the right to vote, former slaves to have the right to vote to reestablish governments that would do that. He tried to do it in Ohio and failed. But he was a real political fighter from a ways back. He also fought on issues like eight-day work week, even women's rights. He was a uh, early supporter. Benjamin Wade was kind of happy that John, I mean, I wasn't happy about the assassination, of course. He was happy that Johnson was coming into office because he just felt that Lincoln had too much of the milk of human kindness to get the job done in the South, and Johnson's going to do it. But they're all wrong. And unfortunately for them, they didn't want the southern states to come back into the Union. There are many that believe that there were still kind of territories after the war. 
that were still like in rebellion. But what the reality was is they were in military districts and while there wasn't a war going on or fighting going on, the military is still in control of these areas. And that's the way radical Republicans in Congress wanted to leave it. They didn't want the states to be reformed until they were ready to accept the rights of black citizens, have them voting. But because of this, everything's in the control of the military, and that means everything's in President Johnson's hands. A Virginia Republican says that what's happening is, under Johnson, some of the military commanders are easing up, laying back, and letting former rebels take over every state, city, county office. In Alabama, they say, the rebels have had their own way in many counties. Can Congress save us from annihilation? The Chicago Times says, cannot Congress check the villainous conspiracy of Johnson and company? Johnson, the gruff, obstinate fighter, wanted his version of a softer reconstruction. It's the simple loyal deal. He gives a blanket amnesty to most Southerners. The only ones he's exempting are people who are officers in the war, officers in the government, or people of a certain property value, because one thing he hated was the rich southern plantation owners. But everyone else got an exemption. You know, and and slowly the, the radicals realize that Johnson is not going to play their game. Here's what the Boston Commonwealth newspaper says. Uh, Congress has made a mistake. They're acting like Johnson is just a stupid blockhead. Well, he works quietly and steadily in the White House to accomplish his wicked ends. Johnson's tired of working with Edwin Stanton in the White House, and so we have a very strange day in the War Department. Edwin Stanton is, is the War Secretary, is in his office, and he's talking with some other generals. And in dashes Lorenzo Thomas, who, as of now, works for Stanton in the War Department. He says, I must speak with you. Stanton's kind of like, do you have an appointment? Like, why are you here? And then he says, well... These men can hear, you know, referring to the generals, they can hear what you have to say. No, sir, I'd like to speak to you in private. You can say what you wish. Sir, I have come to take this office under the orders of the President of the United States. Stanton says, I will not leave this office. Thomas, I must insist. Stanton now says, you work for me. I command you back to your office. Thomas said, I will not go. I must take this office. I will run the War Department per the President's order. Stanton, you will not. I shall issue orders as Secretary of War, Thomas says. You shall not. I will countermand them. These generals will not listen to you. So this goes on for a little bit, and then to avoid just a silly scene, uh, you know, Stanton's not going, Thomas isn't going, Thomas does retire to an office across the hallway. And Stanton follows him and yells at him some more, and they go back and forth. But essentially, Johnson has attempted to replace Stanton as a Secretary of War. But Congress has passed an act called the Tenure of Office Act, which forbids this process. Johnson doesn't recognize that, because as soon as Stanton's replaced, and I think this is what gets forgotten about in the impeachment battle, as soon as Stanton is replaced, 
we're going to put in military governors that are going to be a lot easier on the former rebels and then are not going to be so concerned with restoring the rights of black citizens, with doing anything about violence, with helping out the Freedmen's Bureau, which is trying to get black citizens treated fairly. And it's not just this silly little battle of office keys. There's politics behind it, and there's politics that go right up to the debates of today. Well, because of this episode, this uh, Stanton being removed from office, this is what triggers, finally, the impeachment vote. I mean, they just, for the Republicans, this is the final straw. They, uh, they're they locked in battle. They feel like they had elected a Republican president, and now a Democratic vice president has usurped the office. As the House manager, Benjamin Butler, former general in the union effort, who's now a congressman, and he's going to say that it's not just, he's not just going to talk about arcane legal issues. He's going to say that Johnson is responsible for the violence against thousands of people in the South. Black men, but also white unionists who are being terrorized. And in one point during the impeachment trial, he holds up to the entire Senate a shirt that is stained with blood and says, this is one of our Ohio friends who was deemed a carpetbagger in Mississippi and killed by friends of Johnson. Yes, maybe for the first time, Benjamin Butler is going to wave the bloody shirt and this will become a motive in politics for the entire 19th century. The articles presented against Johnson, you know, have to do with technical legal issues, but just the very act of replacing Stanton is one article, and then replacing him with Thomas is treated as a second article. And, And even going out and campaigning in the 1866 election and saying bad things against Congress is a, it becomes another article. Then there's this 11th article, which is just extremely general and is just made to tie everything together. So this is a very political process that we'd reference. One of the things that I don't think is well understood about impeachments that we've had in the past, be it judges or presidents, is that um, is how important the presiding officer is and how important the rules of conduct in the trial. One of the things that happened in President Johnson's trial, now it didn't end up being decisive for him, but it certainly was hurtful overall, is that there's a lot of back and forth and there's constant objections to to witnesses. So we think of impeachment as going to be this extremely fair process, and it could very well be. But you also have to watch how the rules are played. In the case of President Johnson, a lot of times when the president's lawyer wanted to address something to defend him, it was overruled and not allowed. 21 of the proffers of testimony by the defense were objected to by the prosecution, and but nine of them were permitted answer. And that's why it's different from a court. Bringing the Chief Justice of the United States over the Senate suggests that the Senate has now changed. Yet there are rulings that the Senate has made in its own Senate rules at times that say that it is not going into the trial. This happens after the Johnson impeachment. Here's some of the reasons why, if if you're a court and not a Senate, respondents going to be entitled to informed of the nature of the causes acquisition against them, He's entitled to be confronted with the witnesses against him. That hasn't always happened in impeachment cases. He cannot be compelled to be a witness against himself. 
the uh, interestingly enough in Johnson's impeachment, the Johnson um, Benjamin Butler very much wanted to get Johnson in a chair, and senators objected. What Benjamin Butler didn't know is Johnson very much wanted to be in that chair in the Senate floor defending himself, but his advisors cautioned against it, and and a reasonable doubt of the respondent's guilt must result in his acquittal. But since the Senate isn't really a court, these things don't apply, or don't have to apply. Another thing that's very important, if if the Senate is a court, once acquitted in impeachment, the president could not be subjected for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so I want you to go to um, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. That's our website, and there's two things there. One, we talked about bombfell.com slash myhistory and the Bombfell styling service. But, you know, if you want to see a picture of me with the clothes, you can go there. And www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com on our site. And there's a picture of me with my Bombfell clothes. And uh, you'll also see a picture of my cat. And uh, she's become a big Bombfell fan. Despite all the obstacles put up against um, Johnson in the trial, his lawyer does make the case, you know, and his main point is going to go to what is one of the questions about impeachment today. What is, what is a high crime and misdemeanor, right? He raises that question in the Senate trial. What are these high crimes and misdemeanors? Has he committed treason or bribery? Has he appropriated the public funds or public property unlawfully to his own use? These alleged high crimes and misdemeanors are all founded upon the mere forms of executive administration. In other words, show me your high crimes and misdemeanors. There's none here. The Johnson impeachments, the 
Chase impeachment. There's another one in 1905 that's going to come up years after Johnson during Theodore Roosevelt's administration where a U.S. federal judge in Florida, Swain, is impeached by the House. And all Swain did is fill out expense vouchers for too much. You know, he he got $10 a day and couldn't show receipts that he was using that amount of expenses. Used a railroad car from a bankrupt railroad that was under his supervision. And he put two lawyers in jail and banned them from the Florida bar for a year for contempt of court. Not great things. Ethically challenging. Uh, The people in Florida really didn't like it. Those lawyers were very prominent people. They thought Judge Swain was like a tyrant in the courtroom. But it was not anything that would get you or I in jail. Yet high crime and misdemeanors right there in the Constitution. And, And the Senate did not convict Swain. As we'll talk about, the Senate did not convict Johnson either. It did not convict Bill Clinton many years later. But the House did. So there's still this battle about what's impeachable or not impeachable, what's a high crime and misdemeanor. But what you do see in an argument that could be made through history is that, at least so far, that's important words, it looks like the House is much more liberal about what's high crime and misdemeanor and the Senate much more conservative. Back to Edmund Ross. And if you take the JFK standard and the textbook version, which might be true, he was just a small-town guy who just happened to get involved in politics. Yet, you know, there's also the possibility that still waters run deep. Ross was also a Union soldier who fought in combat. So you have this open question. Was he voting for impeachment for very good reasons, or was he a swindler? Important people to know in this story are Perry Fuller, Samuel Pomeroy, James Layat, and the Reams. Oh, the Reams. You start with Perry Fuller. He's a notorious briber, swindler. He makes his fortune in really stealing and then selling Indian lands. He gets a job as a trader convinces the authorities in Kansas to steal, and then he sells and gets a part of Indian land. He is hated in the Indian community for this. And he's not that well-liked by a lot of Kansans who know exactly what he's doing. Ross and his fellow Senator Samuel Pomeroy are only in the Senate because Fuller influences the Kansas state senators at this time, legislature-elect senators. Everyone's amazed when Edmund Ross gets this job because he was an, yeah, he was a newspaper editor. Yeah, he's a kind of a strong, radical Republican guy in Kansas, but he never had any political career. Why is he becoming a U.S. senator all of a sudden? And many point to Perry Fuller, who perhaps gave out a few checks on the Kansas Senate floor to get this done. He makes so much money on Indian lands and other schemes that Perry Fuller moves to Washington and marries Mary Ream, Missouri family. Very well known in Washington. Ross lives at the house of Reem's father, Perry Fuller's father-in-law. Samuel Pomeroy is also a senator at the time, and he resents Ross. Pomeroy is one of these people like, where did Ross come from? He's very close with Benjamin Wade. Now, Benjamin Wade, we talked a bit out earlier, adds a whole level to the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, and maybe the reason that it fails, because Benjamin Wade gets himself elected Senate President Pro Temp. 
line of succession back in this time is president, vice president, Senate president pro temp. Andrew Johnson is a vice president who ascended. If he's removed, the Senate pro temp gets the power. So Benjamin Wade, who's on the Senate trying Johnson, actually benefits if Johnson is impeached. There's objections raised to the floor by Democrats when he even swears in during the impeachment trial. They say, you can't be here. It's overruled. The Republicans have the majority of the Senate. Another way, the Senate's a little different from a court, right? Anyway, Benjamin Wade, the possible president-to-be, is much closer to Samuel Pomeroy than he is to Ross. We know this. And there are plans to kind of sell the whole government out, sack all of the Johnson people, and put in all of the Wade people, the real radical Republicans, to pursue a much more aggressive reconstruction. Fuller is not a radical or a Johnsonite. All he cares about is greenbacks. He and James Legate, a postal official in Kansas, allegedly come up with this scheme. Look, we're going to develop a campaign fund for, I don't know, somebody who's not Johnson or the Republican. Oh, the Chief Justice of the United States. We want him to be president. We're going to start raising money for him. This isn't like the 20th century. We have the FEC and everything like that in forms to fill out. You raise money, you're just raising money. They really have no intention, Fuller or Legate, of getting Chase to be president. This is a fund set up to bribe senators who will vote for acquittal. Fuller's not even that motivated defending Johnson. He comes out in favor of Johnson. Of course, Johnson's got control of the federal patronage. But really, then, and kind of still true now, he's going to take a cut of all that fundraised money and make some of it his own. So a good political fund in the 19th century prior to the whole follow the money, Woodward and Bernstein, muckraking stuff, you could attack me, but it's just your partisan press attacking me, saying I have this big campaign fund. You could get away with an awful lot. But supporting Johnson has some extra benefits. I mean, Fuller wants the appointment to be an internal revenue commissioner. This is what he really desires. There he can make the big money being able to squeeze liquor distributors. You know, federal government controls the whiskey tax and being able to squeeze them and get money from them. That's what he wants. This is important because after the impeachment vote, Ross is actually going to get that job for Fuller. And Fuller will become the New Orleans Internal Revenue Commissioner. He's going to be indicted a couple of years later, but he does get that job done. So the connections are Fuller are, are pretty strong. I mean, he's living in Fuller's father-in-law's house, Ross is. The connections suggest that at minimum, Ross's impeachment vote was influenced by a desire to change the patronage structure for more favorable for himself. And it could possibly be that he was to receive some remuneration or very least help his good friend Perry Fuller out in that quest. Ross never, never admits that uh, for the rest of his life. He challenges his opponents. He says that, hey, he was offered bribes from the other side to vote for Johnson's impeachment, that Benjamin Butler at one point says there's bushel of money. How much does he want? Here's what he says on the Senate floor later after he's criticized about his vote. I have been no summer soldier, no sunshine patriot. I was baptized in politics in the old abolition party of 44, when but 7,000 men in the United States dared to say that they were friends of the slave. And I bore my share of the whips and scorn. I entered the ranks of the Union Army as a private soldier and carried the flag until slavery was destroyed. I have never labored or fought for plunder. My hands have no dishonorable stain on them. We have to be fair to historical figures. 
And once in a while, we have to give them their voice. That is his voice. So he's very much telling you that these allegations didn't happen. I'd like to simplify the story here, and but it's hard. <laughs> the story of Edmund Ross and his impeachment vote, but it's hard. And I can't do that and talk about Vinnie Ream. But it's hard to not talk about Vinnie or Lavender Ream. My history can beat up your politics is not a romance novel. It's not a uh, it's not a soap opera. But and I don't actually think there was any romance here except what was alleged by Ross's opponents. But here goes. Reem is a 19 year old woman. She's an eligible bachelorette and she's in Washington. Very social. She has an amazing talent. And this is 1868. And she actually works to support herself being a sculptor. She's talented. She's really good. Her pieces are realistic. She makes a Lincoln. And at the time of this impeachment, she's still molding this Lincoln head. She's got the head done and is working on the rest of the statue. She's got an office in the Capitol building. So all the senators know it. It's so different what she's doing. You know, statues at this time would be Romanesque. Statues of Washington and a toga and things like that. Lincoln is in his real clothes with his real face. It's grim. It's sad. This is the fashion now of 1866. We want the real Lincoln. And Reem is working in the studio, molding this big Lincoln head. By her own account, she had no interest in impeachment. And by her own account, she did not try to swing Ross's vote one way or the other, even though they're living in the same house. Before the impeachment vote, they're looking for any way they can get to Ross. How is he going to vote? There's stories that his brother, William, they offer him tens of thousands of dollars if he can say which way Ross is going to vote. People are visiting the Ream house, and Vinnie Ream is there. Sickles badgers her. Are you going to help? Can you sway Ross's vote? And this is where the scheme gets weird. They threaten Vinnie Ream. If you don't get Ross to vote for impeachment, we're going to kick you out of the studio in the Capitol. And actually, after Ross's vote, they do. They make that attempt. But she has some powerful friends. Thadia Stephen, who is a big supporter of impeachment against Johnson, also likes Vinnie Ream and her work. He's modeling for a uh, sculpture that's going to be built after his death. Benjamin Butler makes sure that Ross sees letters that are sent to him alleging that he's having an affair, that he's infatuated with Vinnie Ream. They also allege the bribery and his connections to Perry Fuller, that all this is going to come out if you vote against impeachment. Ross casts his vote. Not guilty. He's shunned by the Republican Party. He's going to switch to the Democratic Party. And later, when Grover Cleveland becomes president in 1884, he's going to appoint him territorial governor of New Mexico. But he's finished in the Republican Party. And I guess you could ask, why dwell so much on this story of Edmund Ross, other than it's interesting and intriguing? Why does it matter? This like story of sculptors and plaster and greenback schemes, bribes handed out. Well, Ross's story is very important because he was the single vote for impeachment. And of course, the conviction 
against the conviction of Andrew Johnson and saved Andrew Johnson in that sense. Of course, you know, nobody thinks about the other six senators. It's always a focus on Ross because he was kind of a swing vote, but, you know, and he was a silent man. But, you know, there were seven votes against impeachment. So if that last vote, though, wasn't for a good reason, if it was because Ross wanted to get the patronage from Johnson to get it away from Wade, or if he was taking a bribe, anything like that, if it's just because he didn't like Pomeroy or like Wade very much and he was just bitter about it and he voted not guilty, those are all poor reasons for us moderns looking back and seeing precedents for impeachment, right? So the Andrew Johnson impeachment becomes less of a precedent if it was just about those silly things. And there's a lot of evidence in the, in the letters that Ross writes to President Johnson after the impeachment trial. He gets Perry Fuller that job. It's not the only one. He writes several letters. And in one case, one of the requests for patronage that Ross makes to Andrew Johnson, who is now still president, having survived the impeachment vote, he writes, this appointment's vital because of my vote on impeachment. You can look at it two ways. It's either I'm kind of threatening you. We could do this impeachment again. There's no double jeopardy. I'm kind of saying, hey, I saved you. Reward me. Or the other other nicer way to look at it is that Ross is saying, I'm dead here because of the way I voted on impeachment. Can you help me? What interpretation it is determines a lot about whether this is a real precedent. Here's why. Here's what the Heritage Foundation says about impeachment. Because high crimes and misdemeanors was a term of art used in English impeachments, a plausible reading supported by many scholars is that the grounds for impeachment can, not, can be not only to define crimes of treason and bribery, but also other criminal and other non-criminal behavior amounting to a serious dereliction of duty. That interpretation is disputed, but it is agreed by virtually all that the impeachment remedy was only to be used in the most extreme situations a position confirmed by the relatively few instances where Congress has used the device. The most important impeachments were those brought against United States Associate Justice Samuel Chase in 1805, against President Andrew Johnson in 1867, and against President William Jefferson Clinton in 1999. None of these three resulted in removal from office, and all three stand for the principle that impeachment should not be perceived as a device simply to remove a political opponent in that regard, The caution of the framers has been fulfilled. That is the Heritage Foundation. That is Stephen D. Presser, Sullivan and Cromwell Professor of Law at Northwestern University. And that's the Heritage view, that the Chase impeachment and the Johnson impeachment speak to us from history to the future. But it's fair to question if the Chase impeachment was at least partially about, you know, Aaron Burr making a big fuss about really considering each article carefully. And if the Johnson impeachment might have been about bribery or something other than what Ross said, are they really viable? Do you really have that standard of, you're only going to use this in extreme situations. Look at what happened with Johnson. Well, what happened with Johnson, it should be voided. Because really the votes were there for impeachment, but for bribery. That's one way to look at it, possibly. Ross's story is odd, but not unique. We'll simply never know how each impeachment happens. Is it the politics or great honor involved? It's got to be a mixture of political and judicial. 
There is no way, for instance, to assert that Johnson should be impeached because of the reasons stated by the House managers. Now, you can go back in history and say because of the Reconstruction, perhaps he should have been removed from office. But those legal grounds were puny and petty, and there wasn't much there. It's difficult to justify Bill Clinton's impeachment in 1999. Overwhelming public opinion of Americans at the time said he should not have been impeached and certainly not convicted. Article 1 of the impeachment articles said that Bill Clinton, with time to prepare and fully aware about lying under oath, lied about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. That, the famous phrase, no sexual relations, that he said, occurred, was itself perjury right there. That was one of the articles. But also the House manager said that he lied about the timing. He said the relationship began in early 1996 when it began in late 1995. Yes, these are small differences, the House manager said, but he's a lawyer. He knows what he's doing, and he had time to prepare, and he still lied. Clinton said they only met on certain occasions. White House logs and phone calls support otherwise, that there were, the meetings were more frequent than any real meaning of the term certain occasions. Finally, House managers showed a video of the president watching his lawyer's statement. The president had said in testimony that he wasn't really paying attention during that time. But the video, they said, shows a very alert president, certainly not asleep, certainly paying attention. He lied, he lied, he lied. These were, for most Americans at the time, and I think still now, weak charges. But not for the Senate of the United States. There was enough for many senators, including many that are on the Senate floor today. John McCain, Mitch McConnell, Orrin Hatch. Chuck Grassley, all there at the time and all voting for Clinton's conviction and removal from office. John McCain said this at the time, nowhere in our Constitution are crimes designed to conceal character flaws distinguish from crimes intended to subvert democracy. Now, there were enough senators who did not agree with John McCain that the vote failed. But history records two presidents as impeached, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. Almost everyone knows that now, right? But should we record it at all? Should we even talk about impeached presidents? I mean, it's pretty obvious that the average American we talked about earlier, you know, think that impeachment and conviction are the same thing. But is impeachment adding this black mark that doesn't exist when we talk about impeached presidents, Johnson and Clinton? Or is it the way you might impeach a witness in a trial and then the court decides to hear from that witness? Nothing has occurred. It's similar. In a way, otherwise, we'd have to ask the question, why did the framers of the Constitution make impeachment so easy? It's easy. It's a mere majority of the House of Representatives. It's the next part, the conviction, that's harder. These are the things, for instance, that are easier to do. It's, it's easier to impeach a president than to override a president's veto in the House of Representatives. It's easier to impeach a president than expel a member of the House of Representatives. It's easier to impeach a president than send an, an, an amendment to the states for ratification. Yes, indeed. The framers have signaled through that simple math of a majority that impeachment is not a big deal, in a sense. But you've got to send it to the Senate and you've got to do the conviction phase. And for those that might favor an impeachment, I've got to tell you, that's one thing to look at because history is rich with examples of the tiger hunt and the Frenchman. The House managers go to the Senate and they're clueless. So if you're for impeachment and you want, you want to see one, 
You want to make sure you look at who those House managers are. That's a very important. It has been. It was true with Johnson. It's true with the Clinton impeachment. The constitutional origin of impeachment is is, is pretty simple. It's something from the very beginning, the Virginia plan, the outline that began the Constitutional Convention, the frame, include they, they, they were aware from the get-go that the legislature was going to have an impeachment power. But there's still some debate. Uh, Governor Morris and Rufus King initially were fine with having a constitution without an impeachment power. Election every four years, Governor Morris felt, will prevent maladministration. Others felt that the president who created this big presidency, if he's not impeachable, he'd spare no effort or means to get reelected. George Mason speaks, you know, shall any man be above justice? Madison felt that the nation must be defended against, and these are key words, incapacity, perfidy, and negligence of the chief executive. He wasn't talking about crimes in that statement. He might pervert his administration to a scheme of oppression or betray his trust to a foreign power. This is what Madison warned of. Benjamin Franklin, being Ben Franklin, kind of tells a, a it has a funny point. Uh, you know, impeachments, Franklin says, during the Constitutional Convention, is good for the president. See, without impeachment, if a man renders himself obnoxious, the only recourse is assassination. And then he's deprived of life. And he doesn't have the opportunity to defend himself. This is good for presidents. There were still some that disagreed and also disagreed with how it was going to be done. So Madison wanted an impeachment, but he wanted it to be with the Supreme Court. Because with the Senate, he said, yeah, you're going to make this president too powerless. And he's going to become the minion of the Senate. You know, you're, you're, you're giving them a lot of goods on the president. Many other voices for impeachment. Um, Madison's proposal to send, to keep impeachment out of the hands of the Senate was voted down. Only two states, Virginia and, and another state, were for it. Edmund Randolph said, guilt wherever found, must be punished. And at this point, Governor Morris kind of changes his mind during the debates that, you know, a king cannot be bribed. He has all the money in the land, so we don't have to worry about him, at least with bribery. But a president can be. And so he starts to support having an impeachment clause in the Constitution. Maladministration, malpractice, neglect of duty, Finally, high crimes and misdemeanors. These are all terms used during the debate at the convention. But what is clear is that they want something more than just simply a crime. The word treason and bribery is already in the clause. They want to add something that will address something that's not a crime, but is still a cause for the removal of the president. High crimes and misdemeanors is a negotiated result between Madisonian cautiousness about the weakening of the president and Masonian desire to punish maladministration. That's the origin of it. It's a deliberate point that they left us with. High crimes. High like severe or high like meaning you're in a place of power so your crimes are high crimes. You can see where that question is going to be critical. If you believe it has to be a high crime, the Heritage Foundation kind of said an extreme, something extreme in order to impeach. You're not going to use it that often. 
if it's just something like what George Mason wanted, maladministration, you're just going to be able to say if the president or a judge is just bad and the House has impeached, the House has asked the Senate to consider it, we can impeach and we can convict and remove. We have covered a lot of ground. I really wanted to touch on all of the various mysteries of impeachment, this thing that seems so easy, but actually there are a lot of questions. And there's just kind of two stray concerns about this. And one is disqualification, and the other is about the vice president. First of all, the vice president. Vice president becomes president if the president was removed and impeached. It has never happened. There hasn't been a removal by impeachment. There has been by resignation. That's how Ford became president after Nixon. Can the House and the Senate then impeach the vice president if they want to? And the answer is absolutely, they can. Barring the fact that there would have to be two trials, there would have to be because you have to give the vice president a separate defense, so you have some time lag there in terms of how long it's going to take for the Senate to meet and have get the chief justice over. Other than that, there's no reason why you could not. The only point I would make, which is very different from the past in terms of vice presidents and presidents, is that the vice president evolved. Like after Truman, he decided, hey, I was a vice president. I didn't know anything about the atomic bomb. No, my vice president is going to know everything. So he told Barkley everything. He had him in national security meetings. And since that time, the vice presidency has grown in power. That good comes with a bad if you're the president and the president is facing an impeachment threat. And this kind of almost happened in 1987 with Reagan and Bush. It's that if you're going to tie the Biden and Obama, you know, Gore and Clinton, Bush and Reagan, if you're going to be meeting all the time and having lunches, it gets harder and harder to separate the vice president from the president. And charges made against the president might be much easier to make about the vice president. The vice president's going to have a harder time doing what George H.W. Bush was desperately trying to do during his during the Reagan presidency, which is to insulate himself from the Iran-Contra scandal. A final point to make about impeachment. When a president is impeached and removed from office, can they run again? So this is something that, of course, you know, I'm not doing this episode because I'm like arguing for the impeachment of Trump. I'm not doing this episode because I even know that that's going to happen. I'm doing it because there's so much talk and buzz about impeachment. I think everybody should know about it. But if it were to happen, particularly with, say, a President Trump, person who has this huge group, a large group, I mean, it may not be a majority of Americans, but this large group of political supporters who are very motivated, you have to raise that question of, can you run again, even after you were impeached? I mean, we never would have thought about that about Nixon. If Nixon got impeached, right? He's, he's done. And I think the answer is in Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7, and in the actions that the Senate has done towards previously impeached judges. Here you go. Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. All right, so being impeached doesn't protect you from later seeing an indictment. It's in there that you see that a punishment of impeachment could be removal from office, of course, if you're convicted, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor. So, yes, if the president is impeached and removed, you can make it so that the president will not serve again in any federal office. 
but it has to be a vote. The Senate has to vote on that. It can be included in the main vote, so far as I know, to get a real legal, intricate legal legal scholar for that one. But I believe it can be included in the same impeachment conviction vote. But you have to make sure to include it. It sounds like a distinction without a difference, but it's just something that if you hear the vote and you don't see the disqualification from office as part of the vote, just be aware of it. Because there have been cases like Elsie Hastings was a judge, a federal judge. He was convicted and he was removed from office as a federal judge, but he was not disqualified from office. So he now sits as a congressman because he got elected. That's my read of it. And I hope you've enjoyed joining with me to talk about some of the mysteries of impeachment. Now, think about our sponsor, bombfell.com, B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L.com, slash my history, bombfell, that unique clothing and styling service for men or for women who are buying a gift for their significant other as well. I thank them for supporting the show. And really, one way that you can help the show is by supporting our sponsors, and we hope to have some of them now. But Bombfell has really taken a step in supporting my program, and I really appreciate it. You should, too. Go and get your clothes. Remember, $25 off is what we've negotiated for you. Bombfell.com slash myhistory. The Premium Podcast is another way you can support the program. You've got extra episodes. There's a growing archive of extra episodes there, bonus episodes commentary that I have. The last podcast that we did, you know that I said I wasn't going to talk about Trump and whether he'll last four years with Chris on the regular podcast. We moved that discussion to the premium podcast. So we go on for about another 20 minutes about that. And you can get that episode on the premium podcast subscription. It's also more about Lincoln. There's more about Kennedy. There's uh, uh, Ford and his tenure as vice president, McGovern and Eagleton, all sorts of little political stories that I don't get the time to talk about on these episodes. Website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com And thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.